um, well, let me first just say greetings. I just want to bring greetings from Covenant Fellowship. We're back on the East Coast. You might pick that up a little bit. My accent, if you hear me say water, that's water. If I use dis or that, that's dis or that. Like there might be some translation issues going on. But um, so we're from the Philadelphia area and so thankful just for our partnership uh, in Sovereign Grace. So thankful that we're partnered uh, here with you guys. And so that's, it's been such a joy. And I was amazed that so many people came out like way to go. I've done evangelism seminars, no lie, where it's like the pastor, his wife, uh, their three kids and a single guy, and that's it. So the fact that you did this and all came out was amazing. So thank you for doing that. But it is kind of weird having this afternoon. So not only did we get to go down Ventura Boulevard, um, where you know, all the zombies are walking west down Ventura Boulevard. Anyway, um, but the real reason we were, like, driving around is we were finding the Karate Kid sites. Like, are you, anyone here a fan of, you know, like Daniel LaRusso, Mr. Miyagi, do you know what I'm talking about? Am I giving away my age? We were, listen, we were at Allie's house. We were at the Seven Seas. The, that's where the, the apartment where he lived. We got into the pool area. Do you remember when the old ladies there, I'm originally from New Jersey. Remember the old lady that was there? She goes, you should go back to New Jersey. How'd you know I was from New Jersey? We were right there. <laughs> I'm taking pictures, sending back to my family and friends. They're just freaking out. So it was, uh, it was really cool. It was really cool to see that. And, uh, and it was great. Teddy, great job on worship. This is so awesome. You did such an amazing job. That was really great that you were participating like that. So... Um, but turn with you will to, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read in verse 35. But I want to start with, with a story. Um, in the winter of 1925, a small Alaskan town called Nome, situated on the edge of the Arctic Circle, found itself on the brink of an unimaginable crisis. An outbreak of diphtheria threatened to wipe out the entire community of 1,400 people. Nome's lone physician, a man named Curtis Welch, feared that if this infection spread, it could destroy the surrounding communities, totaling more than 10,000 people. The outbreak began in December 1924 when Welch saw what he thought were cases of tonsillitis, but when the number of cases grew and children began to drop dead, he feared the worst. Diphtheria is a highly contagious bacterial disease that attacks the respiratory system. Fortunately, a cure was available, an antitoxin. The problem was that the antitoxin was almost 700 miles away. And there was no way for a boat to get there because the harbor was frozen over. And there was no way for a plane to get there because in 1925, there were only open cockpit planes. The only way to get it there was by dog sled. The U.S. Post Office recruited the best dog sled teams, a total of 20, and positioned them along the route. The entire route ordinarily took the Postal Service 25 days to cover, but Dr. Welch couldn't wait that long because the serum only lasted six days and people were dying. The dogs would have to complete the journey in less than a quarter of the normal time. So the journey began on the night of January 27th. The first musher left with his team of 11 dogs, and the temperature dropped to negative 58. 
He developed hypothermia by the time he had completed his 52-mile leg. Three of his dogs were dead. The serum then made its way from musher to musher. Some dogs collapsed from frostbite. One musher had to hook up to the harness and help pull his own sled. One musher got hit with an 80-mile-an-hour gust as a storm came in. His sled flipped, and the canister holding the serum buried in the snow. He had to take off his gloves to dig the serum out, and he got frostbite on his hands. A powerful storm ripped over Alaska with wind chills reaching negative 85 degrees. One of the mushers made a dangerous drive across the Norton Sound with his lead dog, Togo, navigating the way in the blinding storm. He couldn't see anything. It was completely up to the dog to find his way. And then the second to last dog sled team was led by a dog called Balto. And as they came into the second to last stop, the guy that was supposed to be there, they were early, was asleep. And so the musher said, we're running well. Let's just keep going. It'll take too much time for them to harness. And so he brought the precious serum into Nome, and it only took them five and a half days. And the entire town was saved. Now, the men who led these dog sled teams, they saw the desperate need. They saw the, the helplessness of the people in Nome who were dying. They had compassion. And that compassion moved them to sacrifice, and they saved that town. And what a joy they must have felt to be part of that rescue mission. Well, Jesus is also on a rescue mission. And we see that in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. It says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is on a mission. He's going through all the cities and villages. He's going from town to town, and he's doing two things. He is proclaiming the good news of the gospel, and he is healing the sick. I love this picture of Jesus. Imagine him coming into these towns. Everyone is coming out. He's healing everyone. And then he's going into the synagogue. Everyone is then showing up, and he's proclaiming to them the good news that they can be forgiven of their sins. This is a beautiful picture of the heart of God. Jesus is coming into, it says, every town. And he is bringing blessing and joy and wholeness to people. This, this is what he does everywhere he goes. 
It's also what the early church does in Acts. They are preaching the gospel and healing the sick. Jesus is on a mission. But you might ask why. Why is he on this mission? Well, verse 36 tells us, it says, because people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep are extremely temperamental and vulnerable creatures. They're, they're constantly being, being harassed and picked off by predators with almost no way to defend themselves. And they even harass one another. Without a shepherd, they create a pecking order. They'll push each other off a nice tuft of grass and sometimes not even let other sheep drink or, or even rest. The sheep become anxious, unable to function. Without a shepherd, they will blindly follow one another into bad decisions. They can't find food or water on their own. It is not uncommon for them to starve or dehydrate. They are probably the clearest example of a helpless creature. Now, human babies are actually the most helpless creatures at birth, but they're eventually able to take care of themselves. At least in theory, they're able to take care of themselves. But, but sheep remain helpless for the duration of their lives. When Jesus sees these sheep, when he sees all the crowds in all the cities, his response is compassion. Now, the Greek word used here, which I can't pronounce, is much stronger than compassion. It means when he saw the crowds, it was gut-wrenching. His heart went out to them. And I love this about Jesus. He has great compassion. They have no shepherd. They're sheep without a shepherd. They're getting harassed. They're getting beat up. They're leading each other astray. They're being led to the slaughter. And Jesus is moved by this. It, it brings out compassion in him. Oscar Schindler was a member of the Nazi party. And he ran a factory in Poland that hired many Jews. In the movie Schindler's List, as the movie goes on, Oscar begins to notice the Jews. He begins to see how harassed they are, how helpless they are. And there's a powerful scene where they are, I hate even using this word, but this is the word they use, they're liquidating the Krakow ghetto. They're, they're just pulling people out and killing them and sending them to the death camps. And there's this little girl, this beautiful little girl in a red coat. And she comes out. She's the only one in color. And it's a beautiful scene because the director brilliantly shows that this girl can be seen. And she's there in, in her brilliance, in her red, and he sees her. Everything else is black and white. And she's walking through as people are being shot and dragged out and, and screaming. And Schindler is watching this girl. And in a later scene, he sees her, that red coat and that beautiful little girl. He sees her body on a wagon being taken away. Oscar Schindler saw the Jews. He saw that they were harassed 
and helpless, and he had compassion. And in that moment, he vowed to do everything he could to save them. Jesus had compassion. He had compassion when he saw the lost sheep in all the towns of Israel. He had eyes to see that people were being harassed. It it moved him. You know, I often don't have eyes to see that people are lost, that they're being harassed. I'm too busy thinking about myself. Commentator Charles Price says, compassion comes from seeing people in their true state. Praying for compassion is not likely to be very effective. Opening our eyes to see people as they really are is the true source of compassion. Brothers and sisters, non-Christians are lost. They are helpless. And Jesus saw them in their true state, that they were separated from God and storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Do we see them in their true state? There are people all around us that don't know Jesus. And the enemy is harassing them day and night. Our neighbors, our coworkers, Our family members, they are being deceived. People all around us are hurting. They're anxious and depressed and rejected and dejected and lonely and suicidal. They're they're being funneled down a path of destruction, deceived into thinking that the things of this world, the ideas and promises of the world will bring them joy. But instead, they live in pain and sorrow, and hopelessness, and they're helpless. They they can't get out. They can't break their chains. They can't save themselves. And so when Jesus saw this, his compassion welled up inside of him. Do we have compassion when we see the lost? I often don't. I can see non-Christians at times as a problem. I can look down on people whose lives are not like mine. I can, I can at times see them as the enemy. Jesus doesn't see them this way. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't see you that way? He sees them as lost sheep. He sees them with compassion. But there's another problem besides the fact that people are harassed and helpless. There's a major problem. We don't have enough people to help them. The other problem is that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's verse 37. The problem is not that the harvest is plentiful. We usually want a plentiful harvest. And if there isn't anything to harvest, that's an even bigger problem. But this harvest is the lost sheep that need to be rescued. It's the lost men and women who need to hear the gospel. The the problem that Jesus highlights is not the harvest. There's plenty to harvest. It's that we don't have enough people to do the work. We don't 
have the workers. There aren't enough people in the fields. And the crop is going to die. People are going to die. And Jesus wants to help them. Jesus switches analogies here. He could have stuck with the sheep and the need to rescue them, but he switches to a huge field that can't be harvested. This is a major tragedy. Bringing in a great harvest is supposed to be a time of celebration, a time of joy and blessing, but a harvest that is wasted and dies is cause for great sorrow and mourning. I read a story recently of, of one farmer in California who had to allow millions of strawberries to rot because there was no one to harvest them. I heard another story about a farmer who was forced to plow 300,000 heads of fresh lettuce into the ground because they couldn't find the workers to harvest them. Do you see the massive harvest that is all around you? Your neighbors and coworkers and family members and classmates and waitresses, people at the gym, people at the grocery store, at the bank, at Starbucks, your mechanic, your hairdresser, your mailman. There are plenty of lost people. We have not run out of them. There are non-Christians all around us. It's, it's a huge harvest field. And the heart of Christ is to help them. And he wants us to help him with this harvest. We can make a difference in this. We, we can do this. I mean, you can almost hear Jesus saying, we, we, we can do this. We can tell people about God's grace. There's a man in our church that recently came through our bridge course, which is just an introduction to Christianity. And this man's an, he was an atheist just a few months ago. And he got up and shared his testimony recently in church. He said that as an atheist, he had looked at all the arguments on YouTube against Christianity, and he used to seek to tear down people wherever he could. He told a story about one woman in his office who had lost a boyfriend. He had died, and, and she was saying to him and through tears that God had helped her. And he said, God didn't help you. God didn't help you at all. He would, he would try to tear down. Well, as he goes through this bridge course, God begins to soften his heart. And toward the end of that course, he surrendered his life to Christ. And one of the things that he said was that he can't stop writing down the word grace. He said, I just doodle it, grace, on the side of my notepad and on the top, and I write grace and I trace it. And because he said, I can't get over the idea that God would forgive a sinner like me without me having to earn it. I love that story because we get to tell people about grace. We can tell people how they can be rescued. We can take them to the good shepherd. We just need to join Jesus in the fields. God wants to use us to rescue people who are lost. Now, I know that it's hard. 
And I know that it's easy to feel guilty and condemn. We all feel like failures when it comes to this, don't we? But let's not allow the flesh to condemn us and convince us that we'll never change. Let's not ignore what God is trying to do this afternoon. Conviction is a gift from God. And so is repentance. God is eager to forgive us and change us. He doesn't leave us where we are. He changes us. And he conforms us to the image of Christ. See, when we see Jesus in the Gospels, we are seeing what God wants us to be like. And we are not on our own. We have the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit to help us become more like Christ. And in this passage, good news, Jesus tells us what we should do. Look at verse 38. He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so that's my first point. What should we do? Number one, pray. Pray. Now, please note who we are praying to. The Lord of the harvest. That means that he is the one in charge of the harvest. He's overseeing the whole thing. It's his harvest. We are not in charge. It's not up to us to do this on our own. God is the key in evangelism. And that's good news. We don't have to put undue pressure on ourselves or, or think that it's all up to us. It's not. It's up to God to bring these lost sheep into the fold. Now, we do have a role to play, an important role. We're called to befriend the lost and to share the message of the gospel. We, we have to get to work in the field. But God does the heavy lifting. He is behind everything that we want to see happen. We need God to direct us to people, to give us favor, to open their hearts, to convict them of sin, to give them a clear understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ on the cross. We, we need God to regenerate them, to give them the gift of faith and repentance, and to save them. We can't do any of that, which is why prayer is so critical. It's why Jesus says we should pray to the Lord of the harvest, to the Father. And it's why Jesus says we should pray earnestly. We, we should pray fervently. And this is where spending time with non-Christians and seeing how lost they are will help us. It will produce compassion, which in turn will lead to prayer. Mark McCloskey says, if you want to develop a burden for the lost, go out and talk to the lost. And find out how lost they really are. See, spending time with those who don't know the Lord will fuel our prayers. It's, it's like praying for an orphan that you're sponsoring in Africa. So my family, we would pray periodically for the kids that we sponsored in Africa through Covenant Mercies. But when I traveled to Zambia and saw the girl that we sponsored, a little girl, named Prudence, and I saw where she lived and what her life was like, I just felt incredible amounts of compassion. I also hugged her and cried all over her. She's probably so confused, this big, huge American crying and slobbering all over her. It's not a great idea. But my heart, th there was a difference between having her picture on my fridge and praying for her periodically and and seeing her and being with her. And it just moved me. It compelled me to pray 
in ways I never have. And, and it's the same with the lost. Spend time with them and you will pray for them. And you will pray earnestly. But what do you pray? Well, first, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his harvest field. That the one who is sovereign in salvation will send out laborers into the harvest. This passage is emphasizing the need for laborers. Jesus is in the middle of the harvest, and he wants us to join him. The problem is not with the harassed sheep that are lost and running away from God, or the availability of the ripe wheat, which is the readiness of people to hear and receive the gospel. It's that we don't have enough workers. We, we don't have enough laborers to get into the fields. We don't have enough Christians who are willing to do the hard work of reaching lost. We, we don't have enough Christians willing to sacrifice to reach men and women with the gospel. So we must pray. Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Do you pray for the mission? Do you pray for boldness? Do you pray for evangelists and missionaries? Do you pray for the spread of the gospel? So that's my first point. We need to pray. Second point is we need to go. We need to go. So it, it is not enough to just see the need to feel compassion or to even pray. We must go. And prayer leads to going. As followers of Christ, it is not an option for us to keep the message of the gospel to ourselves. We have to reach out to the lost. Not just send someone else. Not just the bold people. Not just the extroverted people. Not just the mature Christians or the gifted evangelists or those on the mission field or those on a church plant, but us. Now, where do I get this from? I get this from chapter 10. Notice that Jesus didn't just set up a series of prayer meetings to pray for the lost. He immediately sends out his disciples to do what he's been doing. Jesus didn't intend to be the only one in the harvest field. He always intended for his followers to do the harvest, harvesting. And he hinted at this in chapter 4 of Matthew when he said, I will make you fishers of men. So there is a significant transition taking place here. Jesus has been the one doing all of the ministry, right? He's the one preaching the gospel and teaching and healing the sick. He's out front, and the disciples are bringing up the rear. They're, they're more like crowd control, right? They're more like the ones carrying the bags. They're kind of like the bench players on an NBA team. Have you ever seen these guys? Their job is just to get really hyped. So they don't really get to go into the game it's just that when somebody does some awesome dunk and slams it, they jump up and they hold each other back out. They go, whoa, right? So that's what the disciples' job is. Like Jesus comes in, there's a demon, Jesus heals them. They're like, wow, they're holding the crowd back, right? That's all they're doing. Well, now there is a significant transfer taking place, a change here. The baton is being passed. Jesus was the one doing all the ministry, and now Jesus sends them to do the ministry. So the disciples are an answer to prayer, specifically his prayer to send laborers into the harvest. Now, you might have some objections because, wait a second, these are the 12 disciples. I mean, these guys are apostles. 
Some of these guys wrote scripture. They're the all-stars, and I'm not. Well, first of all, they're actually not all-stars. They're nothing special. One commentator said that the picture of them is sheer ordinariness. They are the unspectacular, I love this phrase, the unspectacular raw material that God likes to work with. Aren't you glad that God likes to work with unspectacular raw material? And if you're not convinced, in Luke chapter 10, after sending out the 12, Jesus then sends out the 72. So if the disciples were the bench warmers, these guys are from the D-League. They are just regular old followers of Christ. We don't even know their names. And that's because they're us. It's because all followers of Christ are called to help others become followers of Christ. But it ain't going to be that easy. Years ago in our bridge course, we do a follow-up to that bridge course called a bridge study. And uh, it's just like a Bible study that we do over several weeks. At the end, we really encourage people uh, to consider coming to church. And I was asking this guy, Bill, and he was kind of a I don't know how to describe him, real blue-collar kind of guy. And I said, so, Bill, are you going to be coming to church? And he goes, well, it ain't going to be that easy. And I was like, okay, well, Bill, why not? And he goes, well, spring and all. Meaning spring was coming. I don't know, he had the mulch, he had to do different things in his yard and stuff. The problem was that phrase became used a lot around my house. It ain't going to be that easy. So I'd say to my kids, hey, it's time to mow the lawn. And my kids would say, well, it ain't going to be that easy. (laughs) When it comes to evangelism, it ain't going to be that easy. As we get into chapter 10, Jesus tells us, that there is a gathering storm. Now, Jesus is going to bear the brunt of this storm. The opposition to this message is going to be intense and unrelenting. Jesus will experience trials and resistance and violence until the end, until they finally get him and have their way with him. And that is actually part of the calling and mission. And it's, it's, it's true for us as well. Like Jesus, we will be opposed in our mission to reach the lost. And it's getting worse. The message of the gospel, listen, the message of the gospel that we are sinners that deserve hell and can only be saved through the death of Christ is not a popular message. In fact, everything we believe is basically offensive. We have lost whatever popularity we at one time had. We are increasingly seen as hateful, unethical, and oppressive. And the opposition is growing, which should not surprise us. Jesus actually prepared us for this. Look at what he says in in chapter 10. So, he prayed for more harvesters, for more laborers. Well, good. Oh, hey, the Lord answered the prayer. There's the 12 apostles. Boy, good. We got 12 guys. We're going to send them out. And then if you look down in verse 7, you see what they're supposed to do and proclaim as you go. There's the message to proclaim the gospel, saying the kingdom of heaven is hand, verse 8, and heal the sick. So they have the same job, same thing Jesus did, proclaim the gospel, heal the sick. Okay, that's what you guys are going to do. And then in verse 14, 
He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, wait a minute. So we're getting ready to to be sent out. There's some people that are not going to receive us. There's some people that aren't going to listen to our words. Then in verse 16, he says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, this cracks me up. This has to be the worst motivational speech that has ever been performed. Think about this. The disciples are already scared to death. Jesus is saying, okay, now you guys, it's your turn. You guys got to go up front. They're like, okay, you know what we're doing? Uh, okay, I preach the gospel. He's like, okay, I got, uh, can we do that? Do we, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel like anything special. And they're, they're probably terribly nervous. And Jesus says, okay, guys, listen, don't worry. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Which basically is, you're dead meat. Sheep have no chance with wolves. I did a research on this a while ago. It was something like sheep have like 36 teeth. I mean, wolves have, sheep have like 12 teeth. A wolf has like 36 teeth. A wolf can run like three times. I mean, there's just no competition here. And Jesus is like, can you imagine this? Like the disciples were like, okay, guys, everybody bring it in. You know, disciples, okay, everybody get your hands in. You're going to do this. Okay, on the count of three, sheep among wolves. Okay, everybody, one, two, three, sheep among wolves. You're like, yeah, sheep among wolves. Sheep among wolves. Sheep. Wait, What? He's basically sending them to his death. And look, it just gets worth. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings. We're going to get flogged? And then verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. What? What in the world? Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And then verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. What? Anybody want to sign up for this? Oh, you'd like to join the mission. Okay, you'd like to reach out to people. You're going to be hated by everybody. This doesn't seem very motivating, does it? But it, believe it or not, gets Worse, verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Now you're a fugitive. You're a fugitive. Verse 26, so have no fear of them. Uh, Hello, what do you mean? Have no fear? What are you talking about? We're getting flogged. Everyone's hating us. Our kids are delivering us to death. death. Have no fear. Why would you say that? Well, verse 28 tells us, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So he's saying there is an eternal perspective that we need to have, right? And then he says in verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So this is not an option now. This is not optional for Christians. We, we can't just wait for them. We have to speak up. We have to ignore. We can't deny him. It's not optional. And then verse 34, do not think that I've come to bring peace to this earth. Now, he did come to bring peace for, between us and God. Remember Romans 5? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about not peace horizontally with one another. This message is not going to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So you have to put the mission above family. You have to take up your cross. You have to be willing to die. Yikes. I mean, when I became a Christian, I didn't know I was signing up for this. This feels like I was signing up for the Cub Scouts, and I ended up on Paris Island for the Marine Corps boot camp. But listen, when you became a Christian, you may not have realized it, but you signed up for a mission to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. And as we seek to carry out that mission, we will meet with opposition. Like Jesus, we will be opposed. This doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. In fact, it means we're doing something right. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Guys, we, we have to be prepared for this. If we're going to be faithful stewards of the gospel message, if we're going to be a church that reaches into the darkness, we have to be able to absorb some blows of the opposition. Like boxers, we have to be able to take some hits. Besides Karate Kid, I am also a huge fan of the Rocky movies. Spoiler alert, all of the Rocky movies are basically about him getting beat up and then coming back in the end and winning but he knows how to take a hit. And one of my favorite lines in all the Rocky movies is when he says this to his son, it ain't about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And that's a good word for us, church. That is a good word. We need to be able to take a hit and keep moving forward with the message of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said, if ever anybody should despise us for Christ's sake, let us not count it hard, but let us be willing to bear scorn and contempt for him. Let us say to ourselves, then did they spit in his face? What then if they also spit in mine? If they do, I will hail reproach and welcome shame since it comes upon me for his dear sake. See that wretch is about to spit in Christ's face? Put your cheek forward that you may catch that spittle upon your face that it fall not upon him again. For as he was put to such terrible shame, everyone who has been redeemed with his precious blood ought to count it an honor to be a partaker of the shame. If by any means we may screen him from being further despised and rejected of men. There is a powerful scene at the end of Schindler's List when Schindler has to flee the country after saving over 1,100 Jews. He had risked his life again and again and again. He gave the equivalent of over $100 million of his own money 
to rescue as many Jewish men, women, and children as he could. And in this last scene when he's fleeing, and all the Jews are gathered around, he says to his good friend Ithac Stern, the Jew that helped him with this, he says, I could have got it more out. I could have got more. I don't know if I just, I could have got more. And Ithac says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. And he says, well, if I'd made more money, I threw away so much money. You have no idea. If I had just, there will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. And then he says, this car, this car, Goth would have bought this car. Why did I keep this car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. And then he removes the Nazi pin from his lapel. And he says, this pin, two people. This is gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for it. At least one. One more person. A person stern for this. And then he just breaks down sobbing. And his friend holds him and he says, I could have gotten one more person. And I didn't. And I didn't. Oscar Schindler saw the Jewish people in their desperate plight. He sacrificed so much to save so many. He, he was like Christ in this. But he was right. He didn't give everything. I mean, you know what? Jesus did give everything. Jesus sacrificed his life. When Jesus saw us in our lost condition, as we were barreling toward hell, storing up wrath for the day of judgment, careening toward an eternity of suffering, he had compassion. It was gut-wrenching for him. And so he left his throne above. He became one of us. He became the son of man. He clothed himself in flesh so that his flesh could be pierced, so that his body could take our curse and absorb our punishment. He gave everything, even his life, to save us from hell. And he calls us, brothers and sisters, to take up our cross and follow him and to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. Yes, it is dangerous. Yes, it is scary. But Jesus gives us the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us boldness to overcome our fears so that we could reach the lost with the greatest news in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did give everything. That you hung on that cross in utter agony as the wrath of the Father was poured out on you for our sins. Lord, we will never understand the cost, what it cost you to hang there and receive our wrath, to receive our hell. Lord, thank you for your amazing love for us.
And I pray, God, that you would help us to have the same compassion that you had for us, that we would have compassion for others. And we would have the boldness to tell them about your love, about your forgiveness, and about your grace. Use us. Use us to reach many, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.